Dear God, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for holidays that point our thinking in the right direction. Uh, We thank you for Memorial Day that reminds us of the price that many have paid. Thousands of people have offered their lives for the political freedoms that we enjoy in this country. Lord, we thank you for those who have been willing to do that. We pray for their families in their loss and in their grief. We also lift up all those in our military and are grateful for their willingness to pay that ultimate price and are grateful that many have not had to do that. Uh, We do lift up this military community um, in particular here in our town. So I just uh, ask for your spirit to do his work among us today. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. So uh, this is an interesting time where everything, at least so many things, are online. And just yesterday, I watched a funeral of a former secretary that I had, a good friend of mine down in Indianapolis named Marilyn. And, and it, was, it was pretty amazing that I could participate in that funeral, you know, via uh, the internet. And then also, a little later in the day, I watched a video of one of our young people here at the church getting married uh, down in another state where his uh, wife uh, lives. And so um, it's just interesting how you can emotionally, you know, tap into all these different experiences. And I could witness a Christian funeral, which is this mix of deep sadness that this person has gone too soon at least in in the opinion of the family and friends. And then, but wrapped in that, because of our Christian hope, there is great joy that we will see this person again, that this is not the end, that this is another step, and that she joined uh, with the very presence of God. And then to turn and to go to a wedding where two young lives are being joined in a powerful way and just this experience of joy and laughter. And it's just, it's fun to watch all of that. I think this particular passage that we're going to look at today, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, where the Apostle John invites us in. So we get to zoom in as we see the vision that he saw, that God graciously gave him. This is a passage that I go back to in my own thinking a lot, that I find very encouraging and helpful, and, and also challenging. And also there's a prod kind of at the end of the particular passage. So it's Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. You see, when somebody dies today, um, like Jesus, when he died on the cross with this criminal next to him, he said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that's kind of the intermediate heaven. And so a person, if they die today, they get to go to be with God. But it's almost like at the end of time, the way I kind of describe it is heaven gets a Um, a renovation and a a room addition, a massive room addition, and we get a new heavens and a new earth. And that's our final uh, place. That's our final place to be with God and with others who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on in this passage, I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I mean, there's really nothing more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. I mean, she is, she's beaming, she's excited. Um, our only daughter just got married recently, and, and it's, just, it's just fun to see uh, a bride on her wedding day, to see that, that glow. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The idea is he's identifying himself as the eternal one. From A to Z would be kind of our context on that. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children." Now here's the kind of kick at the end of this beautiful passage, this passage of hope. But there are two different paths that are before us. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone comes to me and says, I have bad news and I have good news, what do you want to hear first? I am, give me the bad news first, right? That's me. I, maybe you're the other way. I want to hear the bad news first. So even so, the bad news is at the end of this passage. I want to start with that. This is the dreadful destination for those who do not deal with their sin, those who do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is, we need to understand this, is that we look around in life, we see all these people around us, neighbors, friends, coworkers, is that this is not just the dreadful destination, this is humanity's default destination. Because each and every one of us, at some point, has joined Adam and Eve in rebelling against our Creator, rebelling against the Ruler, the Maker of heaven and earth, we all have created this separation between us and God. And God's kingdom, like any kingdom or nation, can say, I don't want this in my borders. Our daughter and her new husband, are, they entered Canada just a day or so ago. They're still in Canada right now, making their way back up here. And they got turned away at the border. They didn't realize they had to have a clear positive test for, I mean, a clear test on COVID before they could enter Canada. And because Canada does not want to be infected any more than it already is with COVID. And so they have the right to turn you away if you're infected with something that they don't want to come within their borders. In a much more serious way, in a, with a massive eternal consequences, God in His holiness and righteousness does not want sin and rebellion 
in his new kingdom. And so he has the right to turn sinners away from his presence. Now, I want you to understand that at the very beginning, back in Genesis, we see God and we see his benevolence, we see his mercy, we see his love for humanity. See, out of the love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God didn't have to make us, but he makes a universe. He makes a beautiful place. And he makes people in his image, male and female. And he puts them in this garden, in this paradise, and he gives them all this good, all they would ever need, all that would satisfy them. He gives them each other. He gives them, he meets every need. But God didn't want to make robots that just did what he said, that just um, tried to have a relationship with him without free will, without a choice. And so he put one tree in the middle of the garden, and he said, don't touch the tree. Um, can't help but think of a Sunday school teacher who was going through uh, a lesson with her kids, and she's talking to all these little kids, and, and they were coming up with, you know, why do you think God made this or made that, you know, in the world? And, you know, and well, he made corn so we can eat it and nourish us. And so they had all these different examples. And one little kid said, well, why did he make poison ivy? And before the teacher could come up with a great answer, another little kid in the class said, so that you would know there are certain things you ought to keep your cotton-picking hands off of. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good answer. But right in the middle of the garden, right in the middle of paradise, there's this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And they're told not to eat of this tree. But Eve is there, and Adam's right there, if you read the text closely. She is there, and she's deceived by the serpent, who is Satan, this fallen angel. And she eats of the tree. They both do. They rebel against God. And in that act, death enters the picture. See, God is about life. But death now has stepped into the scene. There's relational death between them. You see this perfectly unified couple that now when God comes and says to Adam, you know, what's going on? Adam says, well this woman, he kind of blames her, and he even blames God. He says, this woman, who you made, who you gave me, she ate of the tree. And, and so death, physical death, because sin has entered the world, so there's relational death and there's physical death, but the Bible also tells us there's spiritual death. And the picture of that in the garden is when God comes to the garden, as he always did every day, and would just experience communion with them, and they would walk, and they would talk, and laugh, and have this relationship. When God shows up, they hide from Him. They're terrified. Sin has become a barrier, and so now there is spiritual death. The Apostle Paul talks about that, that we are spiritually dead. We're not, we don't just have caught a cold of compromise, or just some kind of little illness of iniquity. We are spiritually dead in our sins. There's a spiritual death with our relationship with God. And you see this. Jesus talks about it in this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says that there's a narrow gate or a narrow way for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. 
And so the reality is, our default path, if we just operate in our humanness without God's aid, without His grace, without His help, without His mercy, if we just operate in that, our path leads us to spiritual death, to the second death, to destruction, to separation, eternal separation from God. But there's a narrow way There's a narrow way because of the great sacrifice, because Jesus said yes. We just heard about American soldiers saying yes, because Jesus said yes to the assignment to come live a perfect life, offer that perfect life on the cross, experience the wrath and justice of God in our place so that we could be forgiven and set free. And so we see see this default destination is what lies before all of us unless God intervenes. And let me just look at this passage again, Revelation 21.8, because you might have kind of zoned out during the list and think, well, that's other people. No, it's, you're included. But the cowardly, you ever been cowardly? The unbelieving? I mean, it's one thing to say you believe in God, it's another to believe God. Do we always believe God? The vile, you might go, well, that's, that's not me. Okay. The murderers, all right. The sexually immoral, well, that hits a broader spectrum. Those who practice magic arts, oh, here's the one I think gets everybody, idolaters. Because idolatry is not just those that carve out little statues and bow to it. Idolatry is you take anything, even something good, like family, country, whatever. You take anything and you place it in your life above God. That is an idol, and you are now in this group and then liars. You know, it's interesting, because we don't think of that as a big deal, particularly in this culture. There's a lot of, we call it spin. There's a lot of finessing with the truth in our culture. But the Bible talks about liars. Matter of fact, it's really the first, kind of the big standout moment in the book of Acts with an internal problem in the church, in my opinion. And if you go read the story, it's actually shocking. Ananias and Sapphira, they give generously to the church, but then they lie about it. They say, so they sell a piece of land, which they didn't have to do, and they bring part of what was given to them to the church. I mean, this is an act of generosity, but they want to look more holy than they are. They want to look more sacrificial than they are. So they tell everybody, well, we, we, gave, we sold the land and we gave all of it. And in a two process, because Peter dealt with both of them individually, God strikes them dead for their lies. Wouldn't political campaigns be more interesting if God struck them dead for lies? Would we have any candidates left at all? My point is, you and I are in this group. And we get to the border of heaven in its purity and holiness and righteousness on our own without divine assistance. We don't get in. Without a substitution without a price being paid by God Himself. And so there's this separation. We have spiritually died, and we've separated ourselves 
from God. Now, this, this second death, I would use the word hell. And I'm not going to put all these passages up here, but I did put them in your outline if you want to go read them fully. I'm just going to kind of briefly crank through them. Because in our culture, people don't talk about hell. It's not a pleasant topic. It's a hard truth. But it's in there. And so I just want to just quickly run through several passages. And like I said, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to give you a little line. How is the second death, which I'm equating with hell, described? In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23 and 24, it talks about a worm that eats them will not die, the fire that burns that will not be quenched. Then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it talks about how some are raised to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt or condemnation. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, it says it talks about this second death or hell as unquenchable fire. In Matthew 13, 49 and 50, it talks about a, like a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that's about regret. An old rabbi once was asked, well, what if you don't have any teeth? And he said, teeth will be provided, which I thought was interesting. But it's, it's regret. Imagine, imagine that you don't go to heaven, that you do not follow Jesus Christ, and you are separated forever from God, from all that is beautiful and good and right and righteous, and you're in hell and you think back to every church you drove past, every Christian that reached out to you that you turned away, every radio station that offered the gospel that you just spun past, the Bible that maybe even sat on your coffee table that your grandmother gave you and you never opened, I think the weeping and gnashing of teeth is about regret. That's my personal opinion. Matthew 25.30 talks about darkness, a place of darkness. Matthew 25.46 talks about eternal punishment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That particular passage, and there's some other passages that talk about destruction, some Christians believe that you experience this separation for a time and then you're annihilated. There's not eternal suffering or torment. Um, that is a minority opinion among Christians, but it is held by, say, John Stott, who's a respected theologian. My understanding, and the majority of theologians, is that it, hell is for eternity, and that when you are separated from God, you are conscious, and you experience that for all eternity. And I understand that's a hard teaching, but I think it's, what it, I think it's what's here. Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11 talks about the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast, um, which in essence is those who don't follow God. Jesus also makes some interesting statements. He talks about that in, in hell there is proportional punishment, which helps me as I try to understand this particular doctrine. Um, proportional punishment. And where you get that is when he, he'll talk about a particular city like that saw his miracles, and he'll say, you know, it, it's better for somebody in Sodom and Gomorrah than for you who had this opportunity, who had Jesus Christ, had God in the flesh standing in front of them doing miracles, and they still rejected him. 
And so there's proportional punishment in hell. And I don't understand all the details of that, but it makes sense to me that Adolf Hitler gets a special room. Right? Now, the bottom line is that if you don't accept what Christ did for us through the cross and the resurrection and His perfect life, then we are choosing to approach a holy and righteous God on our own merits, on our own righteousness, and we are completely inadequate. And so we are separated from God. God says, I cannot be with you because of this. And so we are removed from all that is good. God is the ultimate source of pleasure, so there is no pleasure in our eternity. He is the ultimate source of deep relationship and love, and so there is none of that in that separation from God. He is the source of beauty. Look at creation. He, God is not just the ultimate engineer. He's the ultimate artist. And so to be separated from God means there is no beauty. Hell and separation from God is a decision that a person makes. In essence, I don't believe God sends anyone to hell. I believe through our choices we choose heaven or hell. G.K. Chesterton, Christian writer, said, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. C.S. Lewis says about hell that it's locked, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. The idea is that this incredible gift of salvation is offered to each and every person in all of humanity, and you choose whether or not you accept it. Revelation 21:27 says, "Nothing impure says of the kingdom of God of heaven, the new heavens and new earth. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life." Jesus is called the Lamb because he is the one who sacrificed his blood. We just celebrated it. We just remembered it like the Passover lamb in the Old Testament. And he offered his blood, and that paid the price for what we have done wrong. And I just want to take one last little swing on this and just say this. Nicodemus, who was probably one of the pillars of morality and righteousness in his day, he was this religious leader. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. Jesus looks him in the eye and says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I want to be really clear about this because you might be sitting here going, well, I pay my taxes, I'm good to my spouse, my kids think I'm a good dad, and you have your list of righteousness. I'm telling you, the Bible makes it very clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the only way we can be saved is to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of our faith is described in John chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, for God so loved the world. If you know one verse in Scripture, this is probably the one, right? That He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. When I look at the Gospel of Jesus Christ, I think about this pretty famous father-son marathon Ironman team. You probably have heard of them. They're pretty famous. Team Hoyt. And there's Dick Hoyt, who's the father, and there's Rick Hoyt, who's the son. And the, Rick was born with uh, the umbilical cord wrapped around his throat. And so he has all these massive problems because of that. 
And so he can't really speak, he can't run, he can't walk, he can't do all these things. And yet at 15, he told his dad through this computer thing that he wanted to enter a race. And so his father, who had never really been a runner, pushed his handicapped son in a wheelchair, um, in a kind of a special wheelchair, and they did their first five-mile benefit race. And then they found that, that the son loved this. And so they did race after race after race. 64 marathons, the father pushing the son. 206 triathlons. Six Ironman competitions. This is absolutely incredible. And to me, it's a picture of the salvation God offers us because Rick, the son, all he really offers to the partnership is a willing heart. It's the father who does the work. And the father has done the work for us by offering his son on the cross, by paying the price for us so that we can be forgiven and we can be set free. We depend on the strength of the Father, of what God has done for us. Jesus says in John 14, 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there's this broad path to destruction, but there's this narrow path to life through Jesus. So that's the dreaded destination. Let's get to the desired destination. There are about... 8,000 promises in the Bible, according to those who count. I never have counted. I'll just admit that. But one of the most breathtaking promises of the Bible that runs through it is, are the promises about heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is mentioned over 600 times in Scripture. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, it, it just gets this little mention of we believe in life everlasting. Christians are driven and motivated and inspired by the fact that this life is not the end. This is just the beginning. And so we look forward to a place of delight. We're not given every detail about heaven, but we're given some things. The first idea is there's a newness about heaven. This is an old promise. It goes all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. The Greek word here uh, for new is talking about new in quality. It's a new kind of heaven and a new kind of earth. It is paradise. It's incredible. You look at our passage again, Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. It goes on, if you jump down to verse 5 of our text, Revelation 21.5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these are trustworthy and true. There's something about newness, Right? You crack open a new book. You buy a new gun. You walk in and get the keys to your new home. There's something about new car smell. There's something about newness. And so we get to experience that in the new heavens and the new earth. We get to be new. We get new bodies. There probably have been moments that you look in the mirror and you think, oh, that happens to most people, right? One time or another. And so we get new bodies. Can you imagine? Have you ever stopped to think about what's it like? What will you be like without the stain of sin and the fall and the brokenness? 
What is it like for you? You know, you keep the essence of who you are, but perfected. What's that like? So many of us have been affected by trauma and loss and grief. So many of us have deep places of brokenness. What would it be like not to have that? What would we be like? The beginning of the story in Genesis begins in a perfect garden. The end of the story is in this glorious city, the New Jerusalem, that has garden-like elements, has this paradise kind of place to it. Jesus calls this the regeneration. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, talks about a cleansing and renewing by fire that creates this new heavens and new earth. I mean, imagine, some of you are gardeners, imagine gardening without weeds. Wouldn't that be nice? In Genesis, we see the devil leads humanity astray. In Revelation, we see the devil defeated. In Genesis, we see Adam and Eve run from God, separated from God. But in Revelation, we just read that we are brought in to a relationship with God. We're, he, he's, he's like the husband, and his people are like the bride. We're, he's like the father, and we're like children. We're close, there's relationship, there's love there. In Genesis, man is barred from the tree of life. In Revelation, we get to participate in eternal life. It's a universe not of brokenness like we fall, we live in now, or fallenness. It's a universe of victory and wholeness and perfection. The kids are with us today, and I would just encourage you kids to think about, what do you think heaven's like? You know, Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for you. What does that mean? So he knows you, and he prepares a place for you. And I think it's fun. Kids have great imaginations. Let them imagine. What's heaven like? Probably the most common question I get is, well, will my beloved pet who passed away, will they be there? And I don't have a nice, neat verse that tells me, you know, Fido will be in heaven. But I know heaven is a prepared place. And I know that God cares about us and gives us what we want in many ways, as long as it lines up with His will. I think it's possible. In a new heavens and new earth, in Isaiah, it's pictured with having animals in it. So I I don't know. So I would let your imagination run wild. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, here's what it says. What Paul writes, he says, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. What does Paul tell us? He says, You come up with the best possible picture, scenario, snapshot of heaven, and God outdoes it. God outdoes it. Remember that on your hard days. Remember that if you're facing a disease and you're racked by pain. Remember that heaven is beyond what you can even imagine. If you look at our, our text, we see, so there's newness. But there's also, heaven is home. There's something about home, isn't there? When you look at our passage, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and 3, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now that probably doesn't warm your heart like, like it were if you were a Jewish person a genetic Jewish person. There's something about the holy city, about Jerusalem. See, that's home. You know, I, for me, it's very special to go to Indianapolis, Indiana, because for me, that's where my parents still live. My sister still lives there. And while this is my home, that's my other home. That's my original home. There's something special about it. 
See, Revelation 21 tells us that this place is home for us. It's full of relationships. That holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. See, that's the, he's, he's grabbing for images, metaphors, pictures of relationship and closeness and love, and he goes for marriage. And then he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Family, home, heaven is like home. Heaven is where God lives and we join him. And so he dwells among us. It's going to be this beloved community of people that are all transformed and made different, made better, perfected. It's a beloved community. If you've ever been betrayed, if you've ever been lied to, if you've ever been hurt in heaven, everybody's trustworthy. In heaven, every relationship, in a sense, is better than the best marriage here on earth. Why would I say that? Because even the best marriage here on earth has a little dash of sin in it somewhere. A little dash of selfishness. And in heaven, there is none of that. You know, one of the things that also makes heaven special is what's missing. You might think, well, that's a little odd. But sometimes what's missing in a place is what we're drawn to. It's what we appreciate. Many people in Fairbanks leave Fairbanks in January or February to go to Hawaii. Why do they go to Hawaii? Because there's some things missing in Hawaii that are here in Fairbanks. Forty below, missing in Hawaii. A couple feet of snow, missing in Hawaii, Right? Lots and lots of darkness missing in Hawaii. There's something about heaven that makes it heaven, the new heavens and new earth, because of what's missing there. In Revelation 21, 1 and 4, verse 1 says that there's no longer any sea. That may not be that meaningful to us, but the original readers, you see John was in exile, being persecuted by the enemies of the church. He's on an island, and so when he looks around and sees the sea, he sees the enemies of God. He sees the powers of evil. He sees oppression and persecution, and he's saying, there's no more sea. So I don't think this is necessarily a geography lesson about the new heavens and the new earth as it is about, hey, there's no more of that. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation 13, the beast comes out of the sea. This is a great enemy of God. Uh, The great wicked woman, uh, Babylon, sits upon many waters, and so she's associated with the sea in Revelation chapter 17. So the enemies of God are defeated, gone, separated. There's none of that anymore. There's no more disease. I was reading a source this week that said about 600,000 Americans die of cancer every year. 600,000 Americans. No more disease. Resurrection bodies. New bodies. And so, some of what makes heaven so great is what's missing. And then the final idea is that life, life is in heaven. Heaven is about eternal life. Revelation 21.6 says, He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So he is eternal, and he offers us the gift of eternal life. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's salvation, which is eternal life. Water is life, just physically, in our world. I was reading this week that even our blood is 90% water. We can last quite a while without food, And you children, you can last quite a while without screens. You may not know that, but you can. But you can't last very long without water. 
Water is life. This is about salvation, eternality. Uh, God offers us this. See, lack of water is death. In our world today, I was reading an environmental website, and they were saying about one billion people worldwide lack basic access to water. That they are struggling just to find enough water to survive. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman at a well, and he offers her living water, and that's what's being talked about here. I remind you that Jesus himself is life. Every time Jesus shows up at a funeral in the Gospels, he busts the funeral up. He raises the widow's son. He shows up late to Lazarus' funeral and raises him from the dead. He, he is life, and he offers us life. Probably most of you have read or watched the movie or been to a play, A Christmas Carol. And in that particular work by Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge, who's the bad guy, who's the grumpy man, and he's being visited by these ghosts of Christmas past and present and yet to come. And he sees this really dark picture of him and where he's headed in his destiny. And at one point, he speaks to the ghost of Christmas yet to be, and he says this, he says, these shadows of things, are these shadows of things that will be or might be? What is Ebenezer Scrooge asking? He's asking, can I change my destiny? Can I change where I'm going? And the answer is, yes, you can. As long as you are living... Images you read in Scripture about separation from God, those are images of might be for you. Not will be, unless you continue on that path. You can decide your destination. God gives us this incredible privilege. And so the question I want to ask is, where are you going to spend eternity? Where are you going to spend eternity? Jesus has laid down his life to give you the path of life and forever in his presence. I encourage you to make your choice. The big idea is to say yes to Jesus. This is a forever decision. So as the worship team comes up, the final song, I'm actually going to hang out in the back there by that um, communion table back there. And during that final song, if you want to come talk to me, if you have questions about the Christian faith, if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, I'd be happy to talk to you about that, pray with you about that, set up your public commitment to Christ and Christian baptism. We could do that really whenever. And so I just want to encourage you, if we have this final song, to, if you have questions about the faith, to come see me in the back. And then after that, um, I'll be in the next step area out in the lobby. So let me pray. We'll wrap this up. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I suspect that most here are saved. And we took at least a cursory look at what we're saved from. Lord, we thank You that You offer us communion with You, relationship with You, rather than separation from You. Lord, I pray that if there is somebody here who's never made a decision to follow Christ, that they would put their trust in You. That they would repent of their sins. 
that would, they would draw that public stake in the ground that they would go to the place of Christian baptism and say, I have decided to follow Christ and to participate in that washing that occurs. Lord, I thank you for this unmerited favor, this grace that you offer us. Lord, we have all done wrong. We have all rebelled. We are grateful that you have offered us a path of redemption and forgiveness. I pray that everyone in this room will take it. This is my prayer in the name of the Savior, the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.